Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald and welcome to another episode of the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's episode, we have our good friend of the show back on, Dr. Matt Tuttle. Matt is the lead sports scientist and physical therapist at the Denver Nuggets NBA team. Matt was with us back in January for episode 11, talking to us about pain science and his population. But today we will be discussing some key injuries in the NBA and how he approaches them in his setting. And we'll also be discussing some research around early specialization and the effects it has on at the NBA. Please show your support to the show. And if you're a returning listener, then please hit subscribe if you've got a second and leave us a review. It makes a big difference to the success and longevity of us being able to continue releasing episodes. But without further ado, here is the second conversation between myself and Dr. Matt Tuttle. Matt, welcome back to the show, mate. Thanks for coming back on for another conversation whilst the sports medicine world is currently on hold. Yeah, Andy, I appreciate you having me. I appreciate you helping me uh, fill some of the downtime that I've got right now. So I've got, <laughs> I've got plenty of it currently. Um, you know, maybe briefly, can you just explain to the listeners who might be playing the episodes in reverse order or, you know, new to old, um, just, you know, kind of what your background is and what you do? Absolutely. So I'm the physical therapist and lead sports scientist with the Denver Nuggets. So I spend an equal amount of time, I would say, spending time treating athletes and then uh, a chunk of my time managing all of our different uh, arms of our sports science department and research. So whether that's managing our AMS to managing our wearables, uh, all of that kind of falls under the, the sports science hat and then just classic physical or physiotherapy uh, management for our athletes is where I spend the rest of my time. So it's a nice balance for me. Yeah. And, you know, last time we spoke and had you on the podcast, we really dived into pain science and kind of the real world relationship between that and your context in the NBA. Um, for the listeners kind of awareness leading up to this conversation, um, you've sent me some papers to look at uh, around basketball to chat about some common injuries and hopefully create some kind of practical insights into how you manage them. Um, so for the listeners, we're not going to commentate on the papers as, as such, but rather try and pull out some key pieces to try and kind of trigger some, some practical take-homes. The first paper was a 17-year overview of injuries across the NBA by Dr. Mark Dracos and colleagues. Um, and the key injuries in terms of prevalence that we're going to pull out are um, ankle injuries or and patella or patellofemoral based injuries and also the lumbar spine. So for the la for the kind of lateral ankle injuries which are going to be the most common in that area the well and Achilles the the mechanism of say a lateral ankle sprain occurring is not that hard to get your head around um, when you think about the change of direction jumping and landing that occurs in the game. Um, and lateral ankle sprains are very common across a lot of sports. So some clinicians might be a little bit skeptical as to um, what can we talk about that's going to be new in this space. I guess my first question to you is, broadly speaking, how do you manage this injury um, specific to your environment? And is there anything that you do that's maybe uh, beyond the normal management or, or constraints of a normal setting? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And I think uh, your comment about how individuals who are familiar with this or even clinicians who understand the game dislike the prevention or treatment of this is probably isn't groundbreaking. Uh, but at the same time, when it is such a large piece of uh, the injuries that occur in the NBA on a broad scale, like you have to spend time because even if you can prevent one or two of these, 
or rehab one or two of these a little bit faster, uh, you're saving, you know, your games loss, your time loss, the financial loss for the organization. So I think while it may seem like a pretty basic concept, there is, there's huge implications to just preventing maybe one or two of these. Uh, I would say we spend a lot of our time, uh, more in, in hoping that we can prevent them or, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't use that word lightly because I understand there's a lot of controversy around that too, but, you know, reduce the risk of an ankle sprain. Um, we try and do some movement capture stuff early in the season in a biomechanics lab and then some baseline movement assessments, whether that's a Y balance and FMS, uh, hop testing, any of those to understand where we may have deficits for certain individuals going in and then even just baseline range of motion testing. So if athletes have a limitation in dorsiflexion, is that potentially going to lead them to having a higher frequency of an ankle sprain? And then the other one that we always understand inside of this space is uh, previous injury. So especially in these athletes, it's not just, have you had one or two ankle sprains before? Are we looking at a chronic ankle instability? Uh, so understanding their background and what we can do on that end uh, probably then leads us into what treatments do we use for certain individuals. So we're just not using a, a broad scale for everybody. And then does that include, you know, baseline proprioceptive training? Are we bracing or taping athletes? There's a lot of questions that then build off of once you've created this athlete profile, uh, where do we go from there? I know there's kind of, um, you know, I know we should always be trying to fit the uh, decision or the intervention specifically and tailored to the individual in front of us. Um, so obviously everything is context specific, but is there kind of any, um, you know, rehab strategies or anyf any, anything you've used that um, you've noticed uh, has been particularly effective with this population quite a lot? Yeah, I think the, I think again, it's kind of breaking it down further. So is, if it's an acute injury, uh, we live about as well as we can uh, in the current research. So will those first kind of day or two, it's a lot of ice, a lot of rest, um, for the athlete, we do lean pretty heavily on the BFR training, uh, through ORS. We've, we have pretty good results with that, whether that's some of the more classic, uh, strengthening type exercise with them, or even some of their long duration intermittent compression uh as a recovery tool we again it's it's pretty anecdotal but i think we have a research body to support maybe mitigating some of the loss during that early rehab time uh, and i know that that's maybe not something that everybody has in clinic but it is a pretty reasonable uh, investment for clinics to have I'm not trying to be a salesman by any stretch i have no affiliation with them uh to improve outcomes for athletes early on. I think that's been really good. And then from a like pure prevention standpoint or a chronic one, really heavy on any type of proprioceptive training um, and bracing, because we feel like that's where the research lends itself. So whether that's static proprioceptive stuff, stuff as simple as single leg balance and strengthening in single leg to more dynamic stuff. So, uh, quickness, agility, tra training, uh, cut, 
and then just baseline strengthening on top of that too because we understand that strength is a component of any prevention program so i i think that's probably where we where we live for the most part yeah so not too uh, not too novel really compared to what people mm. might expect um, no and I, I sorry to interrupt you i think there's i think there's something in the simplicity like i think there's a there's some devices out there like these uh kind of biofeedback trainers on single leg balance where they're getting computer feedback uh, for where they're moving or like the computer is providing perturbations. I think there's some beauty in the simplicity to it too. I think if we try and overthink some of this stuff, we can find ourselves in really, really strange spaces, but you know, we have to cover the 80% that we, that matters the most before getting into this like fringe 20% of what else can we do? Yeah. And I guess really you're just looking for, um, you know, can they control position and force and can they repeat those things, uh, in an optimal way? However you define optimal. Yeah, absolutely. And like, like I, I don't, you know, I understand the research there behind FMS and there's, you know, it's maybe not the best and, as far as the Y balance stuff, there is a little bit on like just anterior difference, like anterior reach difference, uh, which I think makes some face validity sense. Uh, I think we can try and just use that to say like, Hey, if they, if this looks abnormal or they are grossly different side to side, not living very specifically or hanging our hats on it, but what can we do to make them more resilient to the stressors they're going to face in a game? Uh-huh. Now, is that just strengthening around the ankle? Does that look at strengthening higher up the chain? Uh, there's kind of some fringe research there on hip strengthening relative to knee and ankle pathology. So just like a global strength profile for the athlete and then a balance profile. Because uh, people are going to land on feet. You mentioned that there's a lot of jumping that goes on in the game. So it's going to happen. It's just how resilient are individuals to that stressor when it does happen. Mm. No, completely. I think maybe this is a good time just referencing the kinetic chain to maybe segue to um, to the patella region because there's maybe a bit more debate there. Um, from a basketball perspective, obviously patella tendons and patellofemoral joint pains or anything around that area has previously been very biomechanically approached. And now, you know, more recently, we've been more interested in uh, its, its intrinsic loading effects on it and, and pain science as they relate to this area. To be really honest and to kind of show my hand, I, you know, I fully acknowledge the complexity of pain and injuries and um, how the the nervous system and psychological factors can influence that. But I also can't kind of escape this thought that you've got athletes that range from six to seven feet expressing large forces and moments on structures around the knee when they're playing basketball. So, you know, I do place a little bit of stock and, and bias, I guess, in thinking biomechanically in this scenario. We, we place a lot of stress or stresses on tissues in this region. And then there's perhaps a biochemical or physiological reaction um, and the cells and tissues are a live environment. So, you know, to try and wrap this up, I, you know, I, I acknowledge the injury or tissue of interest interacts with the nervous system and, and lots of other variables and factors. Um, so I know your evaluation of a player will be very multifaceted. Um, how much do you consider the biomechanics and dig into that N equals one assessment of movement or the kinetic change yeah. to try and understand the, you know, the, what could be the internal loading contributors of pain? I would say initially just like the movement profile of athletes, uh, as I mentioned with the ankle stuff matters. So 
what does their jump profile look like? We're lucky enough that we have force plates. We have dual force plates in our facility. And as I mentioned, we have a biomechanics lab we work with uh, with a local university. So we can try and quantify stressors that way. Now, I think the, the potentially limiting factor to some of the just pure biomechanical stressors is uh, for us, we're not necessarily going to be able to change that. Uh, we can't change the number of jumps these athletes make. If we look at, you know, changing athletes' movement profiles, it's really, really challenging. Uh, so, are we really going to ever change how an athlete jumps? I don't, I don't know if we are. Uh, so then, from there, how, what, what can we affect? But, I mean, it's totally warranted, especially in a, in like an exacerbation moment. Can we take some of that biomechanical load off of the, let's just say the tendon, um, and make it easier? Like, can we, can we unload it a little bit? that totally makes sense. But understanding that they have to get back to that load, right? If you're going to play 36 to 40 minutes of an NBA game, you have to be able to tolerate that load, whether or not that that's completely pain-free or you're still living with some semblance of symptoms, uh, but just overall tolerance. So I live with you in the biomechanics world. I think most people in sports med are, are in that space, right? It just makes, that stuff makes so much sense uh, and is easier to conceptualize. So I, I, I think understanding the load management and pain science may be a little bit more challenging because it's less hit you in the face. It's less, we can put a number to it. Although with the workload stuff, we're getting better at it. Uh, so for, for that aspect, I think we do have research to say that we're not going to necessarily change the structure of the, uh, the leading researcher in a lot of this this tendon space, but she does have probably multiple papers now, but one that I can think of that discusses that the clinical improvements aren't explained by changes in tissue structure under ultrasound. So while we want to live in biomechanics and very pure kind of anatomy and phys space, when we look at it, athletes are getting better, but their tendons aren't changing in quality or structure. So it's a pretty interesting dynamic. One of the things I was consider within that space is the pain science and maybe the load management and kind of envelope of function side of things um, is typically looking at extrinsic loading uh, influences on, say, the tendon. So whether that's, you know, number of jumps, whether that's um, how much the athlete's running, it, you know, it's all the kind of extrinsic stuff that you pull out of the sport or the activity. But obviously the tissue can be internally overloaded as well. If the mechanics are yeah, changing or suboptimal in how in some way that can change the internal loading uh, of a structure and that too can then become a load management issue but it's hard to quantify so how do you kind of how do you navigate i know it's a bit of a you know good luck with this question but how do you na- <laughs> how do you navigate that when you've got stuff that you can see and measure and you've got stuff that uh, is a lot harder to model and 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 really assess if it's a contributor yeah, I like I said, I think that there's there's huge challenges to that because we can do everything we we want to try and quantify that, but I don't know that like it's uh, it's easy for you and I to look at a at an individual say jumping or moving and be like oh that looks strange or based on their movement patterns we understand that there's going to be a higher stress on the patellar tendon. Uh, but then the, the clinical side of that is we've had some of these athletes for years and 
when you think about their movement uh, kind of paradigms or like how they've moved, some of these athletes have been having that jump pattern since they were, you know, let's say when they were going through puberty. So between 11 and 14 years old, they've been having that same jump pattern, like how ingrained in their movement system or in their nervous system is that jump. And are we going to change that jump pattern with 10 minutes of jump training a few times a week? Is that going to counteract when they go back to their default pattern game? So it's really hard to quantify and it's really hard to know if we're actually going to make that change. And maybe we don't make that change from a visual standpoint. Like you could never maybe measure it in a 3D lab, but is there potentially subclinical changes just to offload that tendon a percent or two? thinking about like the buckets for a painful experience. Like if we can take a little bit of water out of that bucket uh, and unload the tendon just a little bit with all these other strategies, does that allow the athlete to play? It's a great question because it's super hard. And I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a solid answer to quantifying it. I think for the internal side, like we could try and change movement patterns all we want, but I fall back to just like classic. This is some of the, kind of meathead in, the, in my brain just a classic strength profile yeah like how strong and resilient can we make quad hamstring hip core uh kind of above proximal to the tendon but then not losing sight of the foot ankle gastroxoleus complex because that's the first stuff that's going to absorb force when we hit the ground so can we get a really robust platform below the knee too which i think sometimes gets ignored in this obviously because the patellar tendon goes to quad, but like what can we do below the injury to decrease stress on the jumping mechanics too? So you can kind of just, you, you keep it fairly simple and you look, you know, downstream and uh, are the numbers of say force production in other muscles, are they, are they within the ratios and the values that you want them to be at relative to, yeah, maybe the quads or the jump? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's some aspect of it. It's a, old school adage but you can't go wrong getting stronger so yeah we're not going to have any problem if we get their gastroxoleus complex stronger and, and try and teach them some better landing mechanics like it, it's not going to make their tendon worse in all likelihood i know there's some argument out there like if you change movement strategies do you do you stress something else but just from a pure patellar tendon standpoint like strengthening gastroxoleus complex is probably not going to make the tendon worse it might make it better uh, and then also can we do anything at the foot from a orthotic standpoint or shoe wear standpoint that maybe changes the, uh, the rotation of the tibia and the stressors on the tendon that way? I don't think we have any great answers for that more than a end of one. And if we give them a little bit more support or give her a little, give people a little flatter shoe, depending on the foot profile, can we unload the tendon that way too? So I think there's, there are strategies there, but at some point it's just like improve strength and load tolerance. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you also said about how, you know, you can't necessarily change how people jump. And I think there's, I think there's a huge disconnect in some of the research that is out there where they take um, a population like a basketball player who's a high risk of um, patella tendon or patella based injuries and they watch them jump in a lab Um and then they get, and then they compare that to the activity, which is high risk. But you know, in in reality, a basketball player when they're in the game is looking up and they're looking around and scanning the environment tactically. Um, 
So yeah. they're going to keep their torso upright and they're going to probably not flex the hip and they're going to jump more at the knee. So then when you put that person in a lab and you say, is this a factor, the fact that they're a knee-dominant jumper? I just kind of think, you know, from sheer volume of what they've done their whole life playing that sport, that they're probably always going to jump through the knee because every time they play basketball, they're not going to flex their hip and drop their head because then they can't see the game. Absolutely. And I, I love that you hit that because there's just even on our force plate stuff, and I'm sure you're familiar in it and a lot of the listeners too, but how unnatural does a counter movement jump look on force plates? Like these guys have their hands on their hips, they're squatting and jumping. And we're trying to say this correlates with what happens in game. And if you watch these guys banging for a rebound, none of them are dropping it. Like you said, into a full counter movement, like hip hinge, drop, load and explode. and then what changes when they get hit too? That doesn't like now you're taking off of one foot unevenly and you're worried about landing on somebody's foot. So you don't have an ankle sprain and where's the ball going. There's so many other factors to what we think we have in a lab. And on a, on a side note, um, I think you see it in some of the research for runners too, like how hard it is for runners to change running form. And how much it takes as far as feedback and cueing and then decreasing cueing uh, over a period of time to actually have any semblance of a change. And those are in athletes that it's a much clearer sport. That there's far less variation in running than there is in jumping to get a rebound in, in an NBA game with eight or nine other guys around you. Yeah. And I think maybe the more blank canvas third part of this uh, this paper and this conversation injury-wise is is the lumbar spine injuries. Um, I think this is a bit more of an ambiguous injury area. Um, and what I wanted to know was kind of what are the lower back injuries that you commonly see or at least what are the common presentations that you see if it's a little bit less specific? Yeah, this is fun. It feels like we're getting vaguer and vaguer uh, <laughs> with each injury we go to and less... And I hate to say less scientific, but definitely uh, you got to live a little bit more in the, in the gray. So I would say for the lumbar stuff, it's just we see a lot of nonspecific low back pain. And uh, as disappointing as that probably is for people listening or, you know, even when I was first getting out of school, I, I hated that. I was like, well, there's got to be, like you said, like I'm a biomechanical brain. There's got to be a cause. Something's got to be doing this. but at this point, once you start talking lumbar spine injury, so much of it is nonspecific. A good chunk of this is is load related, and uh, I really do believe a lot of this is strength. Uh, I mean, I hate to say just pure strength, right? But using that term kind of loosely, like strength related uh, for guys, their levers are so big when you talk about guys that are six feet to seven two, even right, like on, on your taller end the levers surrounding the lumbar spine are so big and so hard to control that true strength and tolerance for the, for the core hips, lumbar spine, specific muscles, like correct and challenging for these guys. So what we see is probably more just nonspecific low back pain. Um, of course, like in the clinic every now and then you'll see some more, pure like oh i i believe this is disc related i believe this is a facet related um, but i think even that 
is hard to hard to quantify because they in all likelihood they maybe had some degenerative joint stuff for years or they've had a slight bulge in the disc for years ahead so how do we know that that's even the cause of their symptoms and it's really gray but my background being a more manual based background and you know treating movement and patterns i think that's where i lean at least and i think that's where our staff leans mostly too is kind of on some of this maitland test retest approach uh, and then treating the deficits that we find and hoping that we can make a difference but it's it's really really challenging for these guys based, based on the levers yeah and uh, uh, your strength conditioning coach is quite integral into uh, buffing up the midsection against these injuries as they would yeah. be in any other area. Do you kind of pull them in in a different way with this area? Yeah, I think we've, I would say over my three years here in Denver, we've been learning um, about kind of the best way. Because of course, in like an acute management setting, we are handling a lot of it more in the training room, obviously, and kind of more medical drivers. But we've been trying to build, as mentioned, kind of a movement profile, but also just a an injury profile for athletes on what is really best for them in season. So if a guy has a history of, say, shoulder problems, like can we get them, part of their strength plan is, hey, you're doing cuff work upstairs, you're doing scapular stability work upstairs. Uh, in the weight room and I think in the same sense for guys that have a history of lumbar spine pain or injury it's hey are you doing some Sorensen extensions are you doing what are you doing for hip and core strengthening and making sure that on top of everything else that our strength coaches want to get in that they're leading some of the dosing in their sort of preventative risk reduction exercise stuff because I think for guys too it it gets them out of the training room it feels less like we're driving care and it feels like training and performance at that point. Uh, our strength coaches have a hell of a job trying to keep all of that together on top of their normal planning, which is so important to risk reduction and performance elsewhere in the body. But if you can add a couple of exercises that are specific to each guy throughout the week, I think that's probably where you hit, hit your biggest home runs. From like a purely clinical point of view in PT, we're trying to normalize movement and um, and just get rid of any uh, guarding or any kind of issues that we see um, a player or patient behaving with. Um, when you're looking at kind of limb-based injuries, whether that's upper limb or lower limb, um, especially in the lower limb, when we're trying to kind of piece together the rehab plan and work out the framework for you know, what forces, what loads does somebody need to be able to hit to realistically run again or do whatever the activity is in the sport? Um, we're quite good at quantifying that framework. Um, spine's quite a hard thing to do that with. Do you have any kind of physical standards that you typically like athletes to check off in their return to play for um, a lumbar spine-based injury? So, yeah, I, I think you hit it. Um so I think we we can easily fall back on ACL research always is, oh, well, we want this limb symmetry index. We want this force output. We want this quad to hamstring ratio. But we don't necessarily have that in a uh, 
in an NBA athlete specific to the lumbar spine. We don't really have any great numbers um, for that. We've we've been using the Sorensen test a lot. I think it's a it's got some decent research. We have some uh, standard error measures, some minimally detectable change, and then some normative data uh, for athletes. But I so can an athlete hold this back extension position to give us an idea of lumbar spine strength or endurance for a period of time? Uh, I don't think we'd ever hold, like say we had a, an athlete that was completely pain-free and was doing reasonably well with all the rest of their rehab program. Like we're not going to hold them out of their return to sport programming and training because they don't hit this normative data that we're not really sure is, is even great data. Um, but we, we do use that as a, as one of our measures. And then I think just in the areas surrounding it. So what is, what does hip strength look like? What does single leg strength look like knowing that they're going to spend a lot of time there. So it's not a, I don't think it's a great answer, um, but I hope it's helpful. I hope that makes sense why we use that. Yeah. And it sounds like you kind of borrow some of the, uh, the, your system from other areas like in the lower limb and pull that system into the into the trunk where you look at what are the strength characteristics of other areas that relate to this in the kinetic chain and how do, how do they influence the injury or how do they influence the performance of this uh this more global region yeah absolutely and i think once you have maybe symptoms under control if that's a good way to say it uh once you've controlled symptoms it's keeping an eye on say like, Hey, this is there. We haven't should say it's a severe lumbar spine exacerbation, right? You know, we're going to hold you out of a couple of practices. Let's see what we can, what was your Sorensen's test pre having any symptoms? So do we have that number? What is it now that you have symptoms? And then once symptoms have calmed down, what is it? And are we able to maintain that as you're going through a return to sport program? So as you're, starting to go through just spot shots into more dynamic individual work into one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three, small-sided basketball games, and then into maybe full practices or full NBA games. If you have the kind of larger exacerbation and the ability to work through all those stages, I know a lot of listeners who work in sports understand that that's not always, that's not always the case. Sometimes you got to skip steps and bounce around and move different directions for stuff to work. You've got to be um, you've got to be practical in a imperfect environment, don't you? Oh yeah, for sure. It's a it's a very imperfect environment. I, we laugh about it a lot. That you know, sometimes we want guys like, oh hey, we got to check all these boxes. Uh, like an ankle sprain is kind of an easier one. Like we want to check these boxes, or we want to check their hot testing profile. Is their strength back to normal? What's their swelling? Uh, what is their pain pre and post? Like we want to check all of that and then progress gradually through here's kind of time in the training room, weight room, strength and conditioning, speed training on the court, then basketball, then practice, then games. A lot of times in the NBA season, when you're playing three or four games a week, it's, it's very quickly like our sim have symptoms dissipated. Are you structurally safe to play? Can we brace it and get, get you back on the court all while adding this other stuff in on off days. Uh, and that's definitely not a perfect system, but sometimes it's just reality at this level. I guess the last bit that I want to talk to you about is, is definitely the most vague and into the mist. Um, 
but you you sent over a paper from uh, by Caitlin Rugg and colleagues who looked at the relationship between whether NBA uh, players have a multi-sport background at high school growing up or whether they were a single sport athlete and how that relates to you know participation in games and and major injuries um and you know as people probably wouldn't be too shocked with the way that a lot of literature is coming out at the moment um players who played more than one sport or multi-sport athletes participated more games and experienced fewer major injuries um than the guys who played perhaps just basketball or single sport um you know without stating the obvious let's say you're about to sign a player into the denver nuggets there's nothing you can do about the athlete's past um but as a bit of a two-part question, do you uh, look at the athlete's kind of earlier athletic background when you're, you know, when you're looking at signings? I know it's a bit of a small piece compared to how they've just been playing in the college game, but you know, do you look at that? And I guess the second part is, if someone does arrive to you and they're great on court, but they've got a narrower athletic um, background, do you see differences in their physical literacy for the basketball players? It's a, it's a huge question. I think some of it speaks to the dynamics of working in a, in a professional sports environment. I think it's hard because we lean on this research so heavily and we understand this research so well that uh, this is important. This is a subject that I'm really uh, pretty passionate about from a youth, a youth sports standpoint. Uh, we we want to look at it and we want to understand it on a on a high performance unit side of things and how guys move, why they move this way, what physical demands or physical stressors that they put on the system across their entire life. And we can advise management on maybe like a red, yellow, green light structure as to where we think guys are. But really, you know, if you've got a guy coming out of college who scored 25 points a game, averaged 30 minutes, 10 rebounds and 10 assists like you're talking about the next special player in the league but if they've only played basketball the entire life i can tell you that that player is still getting drafted uh, and they're still getting signed so yeah your your follow-up question is really good about what can you do about it from there uh and we do a lot of movement testing as i've mentioned but then also just baseline like base range of motion testing uh what does hip range of motion look like knee range of motion ankle uh, globally what does flexion extension rotation look like we looking at all of that and then i think you can better explain some of those deficits when or hypermobility moments when you know what athletes have done long term uh, so if you have an athlete that's been playing jumping sports their entire life so say they've just been a basketball player and now they have a little bit stiffer ankle, a little bit of a change of rotation potentially in the hip or, you know, a history of patellar tendons. It's like, well, that all makes sense. Now, how do we manage it? Uh, in a similar sense, I think you'd get similar answers out of like uh, baseball and hockey were right. Their hip version for both sports, more hockey, like, well, we can't change that. If they've been a hockey player their entire life, their hips are going to be different. Or in a pitcher, like if they've only pitched and they haven't followed maybe necessary pitch recommendations growing up, like the rotation in their shoulder is going to be different. So what can we do from here now that the athlete is in our organization to prevent this from being a problem long term or reduce the risk of this being an issue long term? Because some of those adaptations 
from playing the same sport all the time can also be advantageous, right? There's a reason that the body develops these, these issues. Like if you're, uh, or issues probably isn't the word changes. If we think about the pitchers, like that rotation happens for a reason because they're putting that much torque on the shoulder. So maybe there would be issues on the other end if they didn't have that, that change. And again, I'm not a, I'm not a pure baseball guy. Somebody probably able to explain it better than I can, but, I think the same sense. Some of these changes happen for a reason. Now, are they still good movers? Can they still tolerate stresses? Those are the things more that we can change. And I guess we, you know, ultimately our biggest duty of service is to get guys back on the court and keep them on court um, as much as possible. So, you know, you want to improve the longevity of an athlete's career. Um, how much of a sort of toss-up is it between you know chipping away at the basics of athletic movement where you maybe see that certain things could be improved that that should be there already versus you know trying to load key tissues because you know they're going to get exposed to high loads you know that tendon injuries are quite high risk how do you kind of and you've only got the limit you've got the limitations of being within an NBA schedule you know besides COVID um so how do you kind of <laughs> Yeah, how much stock do you put in each in each one? Do you go really specific to loading at risk tissues, or do you go broader and try and just develop their general movement competency, knowing that you've got you might still have quite a lot of playing years ahead of you with that person? Yeah, for sure. I think there's a, there's a few answers to that. Like, yeah, you've asked some really loaded questions. You did this last time too, so I should have been more prepared. <laughs> <laughs> I the first one, I think like there are ways to improve movement competency without athletes feeling just like they're training it all the time right i think looking at what can be done in a dynamic warm-up program or what can simply be done in the training room uh, what skill can we do there like in your dynamic program are you having skipping are you having single leg hopping bounding like some of these really like you're talking about some of these more basic athletic movements that you want athletes to be able to perform are those included? And if you're doing those every day in a warm-up program, or you may be micro-dosing it and making some of those subclinical changes to improve their movement competency? I, I don't think anybody has that answer. Some people would argue one way, some people would argue the other. I, I live in the gray. So maybe. I think you have to be concerned with loading tissue long-term for these guys that last uh, multiple years in the league. And so there's a paper, there's an epidemiology study on hip injuries in the NBA. And this was like a 20 or 25 year paper. This one, somewhere in there, they mention kind of years of playing experience. And you can look at the curve of risk per number of athletes for injuries, um, like hernias and core injuries. Now, we know that, like everything else, as people age, tissue quality changes. The one thing we can stay consistent of is if we can keep that tissue quality strong uh, and resilient to the stressors they're going to face. So I think doing that early on is is super important. As these guys come into the league, and some of them are 19, 20, 22 years old, they're not even fully developed. So if we can use those years to develop them and decrease their risk long term, I think we're doing more of a service to the athlete. And I'd always lean to that. Let's let's do what the athlete needs to stay healthy this season. And then also consider them long-term, even if they're playing for another organization, like we just, it's better for everybody. And, but more essentially the athlete, if they can just stay healthy long-term and we see that curve 
really start to increase from like years three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. There's a pretty steep increase in the curve on injuries. Hmm. I've put you under the. Uh, I think I've put you under the spotlight quite a lot today and given you some heat compared to uh, our first conversation. Is there, have you got any kind of closing thoughts from the uh, from the kind of general conversation that we've had today? For sure, I th- I think under for anybody listening and you know, it's weird to think these thoughts will be listened to a lot. I I just think living in the gray. I, I struggle with some of these kind of Twitter discussions, and I'm not the most active on social media. Um, of it's either this or that. It's it's all pain science. It's all biomechanics. Or I have this new fix all tool or this company selling this, the fix it and the permanent fix it for ankle injuries or the permanent fix it for back pain. I think we have enough research now to understand. And as high level clinicians, we need to be really aware of this stuff and extra critical understand that doing the basics well is probably where we get our most bang for our buck. And the, until we're doing the basics really well, living in some of this fringe stuff probably isn't worth it. And, so having responsible discussions and respectful discussions on new stuff and changing evidence and research and products is always good. But let's make sure that we're doing the basics well, that we have more evidence to support and be respectful of each other in those discussions, and live in the gray a little bit more. I love that. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you said you're not overly active on social media, but if people do want to follow you, where's the best place for them to, to catch you? Yeah, for sure. My Instagram and my Twitter handles are the same. It's Doc Tuttle, so D-O-C-T-U-T-T-L-E-D-P-T uh, for both of those handles. I love having these conversations. I'm always open to having more. Uh, so people are welcome to reach out. If I don't get back to you, just send me another one in a week. I'm probably better right now about getting back to people. When the season starts up, I just lose track of email. So feel free, people, to reach out. Let's have some fun discussions about this stuff. Brilliant. Well, Matt, thank you very much for coming on again mate it's um it's been great to chat to you and um thanks for asking some pretty grim questions there today i really appreciate that absolutely thanks for having me again i'd like to thank matt for coming back on the show today and letting me ask in some pretty tough questions to which i think he did a fantastic job answering and educating us with The research that we referenced in the episode will all be listed in the show notes, which you can find at our website, informperformance.com. Next episode, I will be speaking to Dan Howes, the Head Strength Conditioning Coordinator for the Houston Astros. Dan will be detailing his thought processes for developing and managing a strength conditioning program and also department. Hit subscribe and follow us on social media to ensure you don't miss future episodes. We are on Instagram under Inform Performance or on Twitter at InformPod. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Inform Performance Podcast.